Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is absolutely connected. I am so delighted you're here. Thank you for joining us today as we continue our investigation. We are in a little bit of a mini loop of a nick in time. In our last episode, we set Dominic Dunn up for his first act in Hollywood, ready to make his entry in 1957. Investigators, this really is the fun stuff. In this episode, we're going to intersect Dominic Dunn into his first round by talking about a number of the players who intersect in his tale. We're going on a real ride in time here in this one with a lot of spiderwebs. In this episode, we're going to put ourselves back into the 1940s and 1950s. We will have appearances by Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, Swifty Lazar, and Frank Sinatra, too. Also, the first iteration of the Rat Pack. Let's investigate. Dominic Dunn, you know he thinks he is the best in the business from his days back in New York City. Best stage manager in the business. And to be sure, Dunn's career success will get him noticed to get him to Hollywood. Remember that Dunn has managed Frank Sinatra in Our Town. Frank Sinatra will give the recommendation to his pal Humphrey Bogart for Dunn to assist and manage the petrified forest for Bogey. It's the concert of these two that get Dominic Dunn to Hollywood in 1957. But we know that Dominic has always been in love with Hollywood. From the 10-year-old child visiting Aunt Harriet, telling the tour guides what is real and what is not, all the way to getting into the brand new medium of television where Dominic Dunn is meeting the up-and-coming stars in their early days. Joanne Woodward, Elizabeth Montgomery, Paul Newman. But Dunn is also intersecting with legendary stars as well. Dominic Dunn's first taste, getting back to Hollywood, happens in 1955. This is even a year earlier than the taste that he had last week in that John O'Hara party from 1956. This first 1955 visit, I'm going to let Nick tell you about. This is from a March 2014 Vanity Fair piece called I've Been to a Marvelous Party. I attended my first Oscar party at Romanoff's in 1955, two years before I moved to Hollywood. The Governor's Ball which is given on Oscar night by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, didn't begin until three years later in 1958. Grace Kelly won the Best Actress Award in 1955 for her performance in The Country Girl, opposite Bing Crosby. Grace, whom I had known when she was starting out as an actress in New York and I was a television stage manager, was one of the greatest beauties in the history of the movies. She looked ravishing that night 
in a beautiful ice blue evening gown by Paramount costume designer Edith Head. Grace walked through the throng of actors, directors, and producers at Romanoff's, kissing friends and never imagining that she was about to end her spectacular career. A month later, she would meet Prince Rainier of Monaco at the Cannes Film Festival. After completing The Swan and High Society, she would leave Hollywood forever to reign with him as Princess Grace. So for Dominic Dunn, this 1955 encounter with Grace Kelly, Romanoff's, is kind of the amuse-bouche. The John O'Hara party in 1956 would have been a pretty solid appetizer, but Dominic Dunn wants the main course. He is looking to find that higher-level caliber of party. In 1956, it is Humphrey Bogart that is going to give Dominic Dunn a place at the table. Sadly, Humphrey Bogart will not be around to see Nick and his wife and two young children come to Hollywood in 1957 as Humphrey Bogart passes away in January of that year. We have talked a little bit about Humphrey Bogart, legend, all the way back in the Garden of Allah episodes. We heard about his legendary marital fights with Mayo Metho occurring during his affair with his soon-to-be wife, Lauren Bacall. This is back in the 1940s, and it's to this time period we go to do a little flashback. Back into 1940, I want to introduce a new player to you. This is the legendary agent, Swifty Lazar. We're also going to reconnect to a familiar player, Old Blue Eyes himself, Frank Sinatra. Swifty and Sinatra will get us to Bogey and Bacall, as well as how the original Rat Pack is created long before Frank Sinatra and his pals get to the Las Vegas stage in 1960 with their famous show. We do think of the Rat Pack as associated with Frank Sinatra as chairman of the board and all of his buddies, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Peter Lawford, all their wild antics, making everything look cool. It's the 60s, man. But the origin story of the Rat Pack, I think, is far more interesting and happens years before and has not a thing to do with Frank Sinatra. It has everything to do, instead, with Humphrey Bogart. But we cannot connect Humphrey Bogart to Frank Sinatra without a little magic from Swifty Lazar. Irving Paul Lazar, as he is officially named, but Swifty is his nickname given to him by Humphrey Bogart. And Swifty is the name in which Lazar will make his legend. I've got a very quick paragraph here from Dominic Dunn, really doing a great job on a high-level overview of Swifty Lazar. Humphrey Bogart gave Irving Paul Lazar, the literary agent, the nickname Swifty, which stuck for the rest of his life. Swifty always wanted to be famous, a goal rarely achieved by literary agents. He hung out with the creme de la creme of Hollywood society, the Samuel Goldwyns, the William Getzes, the Billy Wilders, the Bogarts. But he was never quite of the same rank, and it rankled him. Tiny, funny-looking, 
with enormous black-rimmed glasses that covered most of his face, Swifty always had a tall, great-looking girl on his arm, which made him the butt of jokes among his swell friends. But he got even. He married a comely beauty from Chicago named Mary Van Nice, who was popular, fun, and exactly the right person for him. He had his Beverly Hills house redone by a New York Society decorator, and he took an apartment on Fifth Avenue. He started buying Impressionist paintings. Soon, he became successful enough to create his own Oscar night party, and it brought him the superstar status he had always craved. We're going to talk about those legendary Oscar parties, but keeping into our narrative here, enter Irving Swifty Lazar, legendary agent. It is said in Hollywood, everyone has two agents, theirs and Swifty. Now remember, Swifty has received his legendary nickname from Humphrey Bogart, who bets him one day at lunch, how many deals do you think you can do? and 24 hours, and Irving says, three deals, 24 hours. Bogey takes him up on it. Let's finish lunch. I'll start at 2 p.m. Sure enough, Irving Lazar calls Humphrey Bogart the next morning. He has made three deals within 24 hours, and surprise, surprise, Humphrey Bogart is in all of them. Irving Lazar is now known as Swifty. One of the most fascinating biographies is Swifty by Irving Lazar himself. His autobiography is dishy and delightful and connected to everyone. I've used quite a number of stories from that book within this tale today. So back in 1940, Swifty, who is not yet Swifty, he's just Irving Paul Lazar at this point, is representing trumpet player band leader Harry James who at this time is not quite yet married to Betty Grable, but almost. In a little throwback to the 1940s, oh goodness, Swifty Lazar is into everything. Swifty Lazar in the 1940s is palling around with Walter Winchell at the Stork Club. Swifty had an initial nickname given to him by Walter Winchell. He calls Irving Lazar Rabbit because at the time, Lazar is always hopping from one place to the next. Rabbit does not stick. Swifty does. I digress. Harry James, trumpet playing band leader, is all excited. And he can't wait to tell his friend Irving Lazar about the greatest new talent he's ever seen. He's gone to see this crooner, Frank Sinatra. Harry James goes to Irving Lazar Man, you gotta check this kid out. And Irving Lazar will. He will go and introduce himself after to Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra at this point is making $75 a week. So with the 10% commission rate, that $7.50 isn't going to do a lot for Swifty. But Frank Sinatra, really determined. He tells Lazar, Man, I really want to sing with MCA. Lazar responds to Frank, Hey man, let's talk when you make it. Lazar will regret this hasty decision in no time at all as Frank Sinatra moves to the Tommy Dorsey band and will become 
the first singing superstar. Swifty writes that he wishes that he had played that just a little bit differently. So Frank Sinatra making his breakout. He comes to Hollywood and he has already met and knows Swifty Lazar. You go to the people that you already know when you move to a new town. And fortunately for Frank Sinatra, Swifty Lazar knows everyone. Swifty at this point in his career is bunking down at the previously mentioned Garden of Allah Hotel, but he knows he has to get out of there. He needs a real apartment in Hollywood as he's going to be here doing deals. Swifty will find an apartment at the Belzer Complex. This is affectionately known as the Boulevard. You'll hear about this building of apartments. They are owned and operated by the mother of movie star Loretta Young. The Boulevard has beautiful apartments. They're beautifully appointed. It's kind of a special place. Swifty really wants to move in and will convince Loretta Young's mother just to take $6,000 in cash for the entire year. And our fair apartment manager is like, whoa, hold on. That's an awful lot of money to pay for a year in advance. What if something happens to you? Loretta Young and her mother, famously faithful to the Catholic faith. Swifty Lazar has an answer and tells her, Ah, just donate it to the church. Swifty Lazar is in the boulevard now. So the boulevard as a complex is going to house many, many people through time. It's almost an apartment version, a little mini Garden of Allah. But now Frank Sinatra, out in Hollywood, talks to his friend Swifty. And Swifty's like, hey, come check this out. You need a place to live. The boulevard's really nice. Frank Sinatra will move in to the boulevard, and Frank Sinatra and Swifty Lazar are neighbors for a long time. So long, in fact, that over time, Frank Sinatra will steal three of Swifty Lazar's butlers. So we're moving into the early 1950s. Here we have the much older Humphrey Bogart married to the much younger Lauren Bacall. Lauren Bacall is called Betty by her friends. There is some speculation that his marriage to Lauren Bacall does not stop Humphrey Bogart from his two-decade-long affair with Verita Thompson, but hey, it's the early 1950s, and Bogie is happily living with the last of his wives, Betty Bacall, sailing a lot on his boat, Santana, and essentially, which is not too much of a stretch to imagine, being the coolest guy in Hollywood. Now, the thing you have to know about Bogey is that he is posh. He's well-heeled. He's well-born. He is from a family that is loaded with cash. Bogart is educated at the finest schools. He has a life of privilege. But the thing about Bogey is he wears this privilege so easily, so casually as if he doesn't really care about it at all. Bogey is living his best life, and there hasn't really been a day where that has not been his aim, to simply live his best life. So in the early 50s, Bogey is in his 50s, Betty's in her mid-20s, and the couple has some different ideas about how to have fun. Humphrey Bogart is resigned to do the 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 out-in-the-world thing, 
for press and for publicity, but Bogey much prefers inviting his friends into his Homeby Hills home that he and Betty share and just chilling out, drinking and smoking and talking all night long, but let's just hang out here. And when we talk about the people who are coming to hang out, they aren't just ordinary folks. They are stars, Hollywood legends just like him coming on over to the big white house on South Mapleton. This is rarefied air, friends. So all of Bogey's friends, stars, are coming over and there's Bogey and Betty and all their friends and there's a lot of yelling. I mean, it's the mid-50s. Taxes and government and politics and all the things happening in the world. But there's also a subtext, a general rumbling from all of these stars and a discontentment about not being able to control their own careers. Studios are still very much in charge. As a actor, as a designer, even being in the crew, whatever position you got slotted to, you didn't really get a choice. You were told what you were doing and when it started and show up on set here. Easy to imagine that not having a lot of input and controlling your own career gets a few folks upset. Bogey and Bacall and their group begins to push back. They start handing scripts back. This is only one origin story of the Rat Pack because apparently that's what the studio wants to call Bogey and all of his friends now. The Rat Pack. This is the first way that I've heard the Rat Pack initially named. Sure, maybe. But let's get into the rest of the story. And for this, we're going to bring back Frank Sinatra. Because the thing that I want you to know about Frank Sinatra is that Humphrey Bogart is his idol. His poster on the wall. Frank envies the way that Bogey just wears his casual coolness. Frank at his core is fairly insecure. And Frank is looking at the star that Humphrey Bogart is and wants to be him. And here's Frank. He is insecure about so much. His height, his looks, his ethnicity, his lack of education, his New Jersey blue-collar background. Sinatra's valet, George Jacobs, will say about Frank Sinatra that he, quote, craved class like a junkie craves the needle, unquote. And here's Bogey. Rich boy in Manhattan spends the rest of his life living it down. Humphrey Bogart has custom-made suits and pocket squares and fedoras from Kavanaugh. Bogey's just cool. And Frank Sinatra, who's never felt cool in his life and has a short fuse to boot, looks at Humphrey Bogart in adoration and wants to be him. Lauren Bacall will say she doesn't really remember how Frank got into the Holmby Hills scene, but here is where Swifty Lazar can fill in the details. As one night, Frank Sinatra is at home in his apartment alone in the boulevard, and Swifty is headed out to Bogey and Bacall's for the night. Swifty sees Frank, invites him to come along, and what do you know? Frank Sinatra is in. Swifty Lazar is the entree point for him. And now Frank Sinatra is hanging out with Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, Judy Garland, Sid Luft, David Niven, Spencer Tracy, Ira Gershwin, 
Oh, Mike Romanoff and his wife, Gloria. This is just to name a few. And this is kind of a time in Frank's career where he is not exactly on top. The marriage with Ava has busted up. Sinatra has a lot of things going on, but by 1954-55, Sinatra is back on top. And one night, the whole crew is getting drunk, sitting around in the wee small hours of the morning. And Betty Bacall, who is a little younger and sharper than the rest of them, will look around at this group gathered, all a little worse for wear with alcohol and cigarettes in the middle of the night. And she will say, you all look like a rat pack. Humphrey Bogart loves it and thus takes the name and runs with it. The Rat Pack becomes this kind of semi-official club. Betty Bacall in her autobiography, By Myself, will recall, in order to qualify for the Rat Pack, one had to be addicted to nonconformity, staying up late, drinking, laughing, and not caring what anyone thought or said about us. Fair enough. This Rat Pack is going to hold a dinner at a private room in Romanoff's, where rules are made, positions are attained, and it kind of rolls down like this. Betty Bacall is elected den mother. Humphrey Bogart is in charge of public relations. Sid Luft, his title is acting cage manager, And here, Frank Sinatra is elected chairman of the board. No one can join this Rat Pack without the unanimous consent of the members. And Betty Bacall says what fun we had with it all. We were an odd assortment, but liked each other so much, and every one of us had a wild sense of ridiculousness. The press had a field day, but we had the upper hand. Let the good times roll, friends, at least for a short while. Now's a fantastic time to take a break. See you on the flip with the rest of the story. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, investigators, this is a great time to enter Dominic Dunn back into the picture for a moment. Let's go to 1956. I'm going to take these next paragraphs from Friend of the Pod, Robert Hoffler, his biography of Dominic Dunn called Money, Murder, and Dominic Dunn, A Life in Several Acts. This is again coming from the chapter Marriage and Puppets. Working with stage actors on live TV in New York stirred Dominic's imagination, but it could not compare to what he would soon experience in Los Angeles on Playhouse 90. In bringing live television to the West Coast, CBS made possible on a regular basis what had not been done in the East. Week after week, major movie stars were only a short limousine ride away from their homes in Beverly Hills to the CBS studio in Los Angeles. Film production had slowed down considerably, and in between the occasional movie, 
the biggest stars could further enhance their career with TV's easy money and vast exposure. The first Playhouse 90 episode Dominant worked on was a remake of the play and movie The Petrified Forest, with Humphrey Bogart reprising his role of the gangster Duke Mantee. Much to his surprise, it was Frank Sinatra who recommended Dominic to Bogart to be the stage manager on the Robert E. Sherwood drama. Word got around that I was good with the stars who were scared of live television, Dominic recalled. CBS put him up at the preternaturally pink Beverly Hills Hotel for the three-week rehearsal. One day, Dominic told Bogart he went to Canterbury School, and Bogart revealed that he also had attended an East Coast prep school, Andover. As soon as they got beyond those minor academic preliminaries, the young man from New York confessed, God, I love looking at movie stars. What are you doing Friday night? Bogie asked. And Dominic found himself invited to an affair that turned the John O'Hara party into something resembling a beer blast. <laughs> there at Bogart and Lauren Bacall's Holmby Hills home, Dominic heard Judy Garland and Frank Sinatra sing. And everyone from Spencer Tracy to Lana Turner showed up. Dominic knew how to tell a story, and when those names were not dazzling enough, he would also throw in the fact, or the fiction, that the party ended with everyone, including the dogs and quote-unquote the women in their gowns, jumping into the pool. Whatever actually went on, in or out of the water that night, Dominic definitely could not sleep when he returned to the palm-leafed hallways of the Beverly Hills Hotel. He phoned Lenny in New York City to tell her he thought he had died and gone to the Academy Awards only better. Lenny, we've got to move to Hollywood, he insisted. It's incredible. That Bogart party was everything the little boy who ought to have been born a girl ever wanted in life. Dominic is hooked. He's found the better party. And the Duns are moving up and moving out. They will be landing in Hollywood in 1957. From this 1956 encounter at Bogey and Bacall's where apparently everyone shows up, Dominic's mind is blown. 1956 is also the year, February of that year, that Humphrey Bogart is diagnosed with throat cancer. And throughout 1956, Bogie's health is going to deteriorate. The embodiment of casual coolness, of course, Bogie's still going to be a sport with his friends who are still coming by until they don't. Sometime during this year, Frank Sinatra and Betty Bacall begin an affair. It is super secret Although everyone in their loop knows, everyone in the loop that knows hopes Bogie does not know. In October of 1956, Frank Sinatra will charter a plane to bring Betty and her friends out to Las Vegas to celebrate her 32nd birthday. Humphrey Bogart will stay at home with their son in Holmby Hills. 
Humphrey Bogart does pass away in January of 1957 at the age of 57. All of Hollywood, all the luminaries attend Bogie's funeral. Betty Bacall will ask Spencer Tracy to give the eulogy for her husband, but Spencer Tracy's too upset. John Houston will step up to complete that grim task. Frank Sinatra will not attend Bogie's funeral, although Sinatra will cancel his shows at the Copa. Some folks speculate that Frank Sinatra is eaten up by the guilt of his affair with Betty, which doesn't stop. Betty and Frank will continue on, and Frank is drying the widow's tears, so to speak. This romance carries on throughout 1957 and all the way into 1958, where Frank Sinatra proposes to Lauren Bacall March 11th of that year. Wait, hold on, Alicia. Lauren Bacall and Frank Sinatra did not get married. No, they did not. And it is, bringing it back around, Swifty Lazar, who is responsible for Frank Sinatra and Lauren Bacall breaking up. Here's how it goes down. 14 months after the death of Humphrey Bogart, Frank feels like he's waited a perfectly appropriate time. He proposes to Betty Bacall. Betty Bacall says yes. Swifty is there when Frank Sinatra is talking about Lauren Bacall accepted my proposal for marriage. For Frank, this would have been after Ava Gardner, before Mia Farrow. Frank proposes, she says yes, but Frank has to head down to Miami. He has a gig playing at the Fountain Blue Hotel. But Frank has not shared the news of this blessed engagement with his family or his children. It's all very secret, all very hush-hush. He wants to keep it just to himself right now, not ready to let the news out, keep it secret, keep it safe. So here Frank Sinatra is out of town, and Swifty Lazar is always a great available man to have as an escort. Betty Bacall in town, Zsa Zsa Gabor is having a party. Swifty takes Betty to the party, but there's another guest there, and that's Luella Parsons, famous gossip columnist. Swifty Lazar has no idea that the engagement of Betty and Frank is super secret. Swifty wasn't locked down to secrecy on it. He thinks everybody knows. So Swifty blabs to Luella Parsons, and by the time Betty and Swifty are leaving the party, the paper has a headline that Frank Sinatra is set to marry Lauren Bacall. Holy cats. Betty Bacall wants to kill Swifty. She knows Frank is going to hit the roof, be really upset. Betty and Frank do talk. Frank is mad. He does not like to be embarrassed. Frank, at this point, will break off the engagement. Swifty Lazar writes that Betty Bacall really should be grateful to him. He thinks he saved Betty from a terrible mistake. Lauren Bacall was never going to be the subservient wife. And he knows that's what Frank Sinatra wants. And quite frankly, Swifty Lazar thinks he saved Betty from a whole heap of trouble, which is probably true. Little bit of an addendum here. God, the story is just so fascinating. Betty Bacall and Frank Sinatra will not speak again for another six years. 
And what happens when they do get in the same room in 1965? Holy cats. All right. Swifty Lazar in 1965 is giving a party at the Bistro for the launch of a book called Is Paris Burning? This book is by Larry Collins and Dominique LaPierre. At this party, Dominic and Lenny are there. Frank shows up with Mia Farrow. And Lauren Bacall, in 1965, has married again to Jason Robards. Frank gets to the party, sees all of this going down, and proceeds to get intoxicated really, really quickly. The first thing that Frank does is goes after Lenny Dunn, saying to Lenny the favorite things that he always said to Lenny Dunn, which is, you married a loser. Lenny's in tears. Frank's attention will then turn to Swifty Lazar. And Frank yells at Swifty, if it wasn't for you, me and Betty would be married. Frank in a something extraordinary to see, I'm sure, hurls some chairs around, pulls a tablecloth out from a table, leaving glasses and plates all smashed on the floor. Frank's feeling pretty good about himself, storms out of the room, grabbing Mia Farrow, saying, come on, let's get the hell out of this dump. Okay, but what happens, here's a secret twist of that. This particular night at the bistro, Frank Sinatra has just been a jerk. He's made Lenny cry. He's made Betty Bacall cry. He's made Swifty Lazar cry, for goodness sakes. He's grabbed Mia Farrow. And they head to the parking lot in order to get the hell out of Dodge, where Frank Sinatra finds that all four of his tires have been slashed. It is discovered a little later that all the musicians playing at the party were like, dude, way to ruin the party and make everyone cry. Mia Farrow will say that Frank Sinatra drove home on all four rims. Hmm. Frank Sinatra, guy that he is, is going to send a telegram the next day to Swifty Lazar, which says, I think from now on, you better send me the guest list or don't invite me at all. A few other little anecdotes before we close down our episode today. Do have something fun when it comes to Swifty Lazar and his legacy. Swifty will begin giving the Oscar party of the year. It goes on for three decades, right up to his death in 1993. When we talk about a few little spider webs, some of these stories are just too delicious not to share. I'm quoting here from Michael Schneerson in Vanity Fair from a piece called Swifty Lazar's Legacy. In the 1950s, Hollywood was the place to be. And for Irving, I'm sure it was the most fun he ever had, Lauren Bacall says. He was a true original, an on-the-loose bachelor who had good luck with girls. Bogey adored him. In Palm Springs, Bogey caught him cheating at Scrabble. He thought that was hysterical. Oh, and monograms. We called him Ipple <laughs> because he had IPL on everything, even his socks. Remember his initials, Irving Paul Lazar, Ipple. This is continuing back from Bacall. He liked to say that something was kind of wonderful. So Slim Keith and I had that engraved 
onto a silver container for the wash and dries he carried everywhere. Lazar in those days was celebrated for his ability to keep up with the tough guys. He earned the unshakable nickname Swifty for allegedly making three deals for Humphrey Bogart in one day, although he was never his agent. And it was the age of pranks. <laughs> Bogart once burned Lazar's shoes. Lazar claimed he once threw Bogie's Cartier watch into the fire. Frank Sinatra, his neighbor in a Beverly Hills apartment complex, once directed a tailor to sew the sleeves of all Lazar's suits together. Another time, Sinatra tilted every picture in Lazar's duplex apartment. In Vegas, Sinatra set off cherry bombs at the foot of Lazar's hotel bed as his friend slept. From his hiding place behind a door, he cracked up at the sight of Lazar and his bedmate bouncing off the mattress. Lazar had his own favorite. Before one of my cocktail parties while I was upstairs, Frank had his butler come over and take all the food and drinks over to his place. <laughs> I was a good sport about it all. You had to be with Frank. Swifty Lazar, true legend in Hollywood. I've got one other teaser here from Dominic Dunn, which I just think is delicious. Dominic Dunn in June of 1986 will write a piece for Vanity Fair called Lazarama. And when we connect our investigation, I think this is one of the things that Dunn does so beautifully in his writing. Dunn is always connecting back for us. The beginning of this piece, Lazarama. When Mrs. William Backhouse Astor Jr. built her vast Fifth Avenue mansion in 1857, she had the ballroom designed to dance 400 guests. And for her first ball, she called on the social arbiter of that time, Ward McAllister, to draw up a list of New York's 400 grandest people. There was much jockeying for McAllister's favor as well as a gnashing of teeth by those not invited, and from then on society itself became known as the 400. In recent years, in Hollywood of all places, an unlikely successor to Ward McAllister has emerged in the person of Irving Paul Lazar, the diminutive septuagenarian agent known far and wide as Swifty. The Academy Awards party he and his wife Mary have hosted for 25 years has become the place to be, and his guest list, as carefully honed as Ward McAllister's, varies each year as people gain or lose prominence. On Lazar's list, success has replaced McAllister's criterion of pedigree. Are you going to Swifties, people in Hollywood ask weeks in advance. Immense pressure is brought to bear on both Lazars by the people who've not been invited. But Swifty has not got to the top of the heap in Hollywood and remained there for almost four decades by being a softy. No is the answer people say he gives. Or if the person is calling or, or being called about interests him, the answer is, come after dinner. Sometimes he even qualifies that by adding, late. <laughs> Although Spago, the trendy West Hollywood restaurant where the party has been given for the last two years, is smaller than Mrs. Astor's ballroom, nearly the same number of people crossed its threshold 
during the three waves of this year's nine-hour party. In the first wave were 190 members of the Hollywood establishment and a few billionaires. In the after-dinner crowd were people who had attended the ceremony but bypassed the Academy's Governor's Ball. In the third wave came those who had also gone to the ball. All evening, Swifty moved through the rooms like a ringmaster, directing traffic, telling people to get back in their seats. Dominic Dunn will attend Swifty's party in Hollywood during his time there in his first act, getting back in his second act some years. Dominic Dunn absolutely would not have been on the guest list. But Swifty and Mary's legendary Oscar party last through three decades. Again, the last one given, 1993, as Swifty will pass away at the end of that year. Vanity Fair is a publication. will take over-ish Swifty's party, the hot list party to be. But I want you to remember it is Swifty Lazar. It's the one who put it in place. Investigators, I think that takes us to the end of the road today. Was that enough to fill your brain with? Don't worry. We got some more fun surprises coming up about this 1950s time period and Nick re-entering. We're going to see old blue eyes again before too long. So many more fun things coming. Thank you everyone truly for tuning in by listening, by telling your friends, for your kind reviews, for your Patreon support as well. If you're looking for ad-free early episodes and bonus episodes, check out patreon.com slash done and done. Your support is incredible. Thank you for everything, y'all. Done and Done really is the passion project of my heart, and I am so grateful that you are here enjoying the ride with all of us. Until we meet again, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at Done and Done Podcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.